This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Cheryl approached me at a women's event at Facebook a few years ago when she said, you know, sometimes I feel like you've got some confidence issues. And I blurted out and said, yes, I do, because I was fired from my own company. And I tell her the story. And she looks at me and she said, so what if I fired you right now? From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. And each week, we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, she's one of the key players at Facebook, right next to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. Carolyn Everson is the Vice President of Global Marketing Solutions, and she's one of the major forces combating fake news and providing transparency to the social network's billions of daily users. Carolyn Everson, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. It's my first podcast ever. I'm really excited to go into this new territory, the maiden voyage in podcast land with you. I'm excited too. So Carolyn is the Vice President of Global Marketing Solutions at Facebook. She leads the company's relationships with top marketers and agencies for all of Facebook's family of apps. Of course, that includes Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger. And you oversee a massive team of leaders around the world. Yes, yes. I have a global team of uh, over 2,000 people in over 34 countries. 34 countries. Yes. So what does your job look like, feel like? I know you travel a bunch. I do. So the way I think about my job is I think about it as um, 50% is focused sort of on the business, meaning meeting with clients, meeting with the industry leaders, doing speeches, doing press, but like the business. 50% is actually focused on people. Am I hiring the right people? Are we looking to replace certain, you know, country directors that may be turning over, but really focusing on what kind of culture do I want to build? And so that's how I, I balance the two. And some weeks I'm very external, you know, focused and other weeks I'm, I'm more internal focused. And I do travel. I was traveling 90% of my time. It's gotten to about 80% of the time. And so I'm on the road quite a lot. This next few months, I'll be in Asia twice. I'll be in Brazil and Bogota twice over the next two months. So a lot of travel. So you have um, some pretty good miles racked up for your vacation and rewards programs when you travel. (laughs) I do. It's funny you say that because my family was looking at the reward, um, the mileage actually uh, this weekend to figure out what we're going to use them for for next year. So a lot of miles, two to 300,000 a year. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, we're going to get into the cultural side of things, too, in that conversation. But I want to look a little bit about your background. You grew up in Stony Brook, New York. For many years, you spent working at MTV. You worked for Microsoft. You went to business school, but you started out studying uh, you, you started out studying public relations and communications. I did, yes. What did you want to be as a kid? Um, I wanted to be um, on Good Morning America. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> which now my friend Michael Strahan's on, which is always a, it's always a funny joke between us. But I really wanted to be on Good Morning America. And then I 
went through college at Villanova. The graduation speaker was not on Good Morning America, but happened to be from another network, which was Katie Couric. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's everywhere around me. And I got a chance to get to know Katie later on in life, which with the irony, she actually remembers the picture because I was so nervous about meeting her. I was like, this is what I, <laughs> I've been wanting to do this my whole life. And not with a phone, by the way. No. The picture was oh, taken God, with no. a real camera. It was a real camera. It was the, you know no internet. Nothing was really happening at that point. So that's where I wanted to be. We're here in the ABC studios, and I had this huge smile walking in, checking in with my ID because I'm like, gosh, this is really, really what I wanted to do way back when. I interned did ABC in Philadelphia when I was in no Villanova. Way. I did, yes. And so this is really, I love actually the ability to, to speak and do interviews and, and give people information. But my career went in a different direction. I started in consulting right after Villanova and worked at Anderson, which is now Accenture. Then I had an opportunity to go to the Walt Disney Company, which was amazing. Which also owns ABC. Exactly. And I always say it's one of the the very best companies out there in terms of what it stands for. And so I worked for um, a little over four years and then went back to business school. Mm -hmm. When I got to business school, it was right in the heart of the first dot-com explosion. So 1997 to 1999 was when I was there. And everyone around me was starting a business or thinking of starting a business. So we'd go to classes during the day and then we would all work together on business plans. Were you thinking that? I was. I actually wrote a business plan for one of my classes called Pets.com with one of my classmates. (laughs) Which became a thing. Yeah. The problem is it became a thing, but I got fired before I really ever had a chance to start at the company. So second year of business school, I was about to graduate. We had raised $5 million from Hummer Winblad, and they brought in a new CEO. And I flew out to San Francisco to meet with her. I was not ready to be the CEO, so I was totally glad to have somebody come in. But we saw the business totally differently. And by the time I flew back to business school to take final exams, there was a a letter that was faxed because I am that old. And the letter basically said I was fired from my own company. And it was devastating. And so when I graduated business school, I graduated with no job because I had turned down all the traditional job offers. My dream was shattered. And I was basically feeling like I had to start over again. And it was uh, it was really hard to go through that. And it took me many, many years to talk about it. I only started talking about it a few years ago when I realized that I wasn't doing anybody any help by not talking about it because bad things happen in people's careers. You can get fired. You might not have a manager that supports you. And for me to stay quiet, I thought was not right. I think it's a lot easier too to talk about something bad that happened when you have become as successful as you've become and talking about it that early on when you're not sure. Also, by the way, Pets.com did become the poster child of the dot-com bust because it was the company that it's it is the company that everybody uses from the bubble when the bubble bursts. Correct. It's like not another Pets.com. Exactly. And so to some degree, you know, it was uh, um, maybe, your end might have been the same either it way. Was, it was probably good that I didn't that I didn't stay on. But um, we wound up. So after business school, I wound up helping with some other entrepreneurial activities. And then the that summer, um, the Zagat, um, Nina and Tim hired me to be their digital person. It was their first outside hire. And I went and helped raise money for Zagat Survey for and worked with them for a couple of years to help build that business. Then from there, really the rest of what happened was very sort of opportunistic. So somebody from Prime Media had heard about me and offered me an opportunity to go there. And I had three different digital businesses that I ran for them. 
And then Viacom was the same opportunity. I went in starting at MTVU, which was the college network. And I had heard about MTVU from one of my stepsons who had said, there's this thing on college campuses. Meanwhile, he's also the same person that told me about the Facebook when Facebook started, (laughs) ironically enough. And so I had almost eight years at Viacom and the opportunity presented itself to go to Microsoft. And I left Viacom really for only two reasons, because I loved the company and still love the company. But one, Microsoft was global. And I really thought the trends were more towards global um, discussions with brands. And the second was it was going back to square, you know, digital, Mm -hmm. being in the center. And then four months into the Microsoft uh, opportunity, I got a phone call that Sheryl Sandberg wanted to see me. And that changed the whole trajectory from there. And and I want to get into that phone call and everything that happened after. But quickly, so after you were fired... From that first opportunity, Pets.com, the company that you literally helped create, how did you sell yourself to new companies? Downsizing happens in companies. You get pushed out. And it's like, how do I make myself um, saleable again if I'm feeling probably down on myself, but I also don't want that to be a part of my story and the only thing that someone sees when I'm coming in to interview for a job? You know, it's a really good question. And as I mentioned, I didn't talk about it for many years, probably until I had the confidence to start talking about it and and realizing that it was actually okay to talk about that. It's okay to talk about failure. I do think failure is more widely accepted than people realize. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're in the moment and something happens, you get fired, you get laid off, whatever, you feel like, oh, my gosh, this is like crashing. It's life changing. How am I going to recover? The reality is, is it happens to people all the time. And I think it's actually the resilience that you build to get back on your feet and not let one company or one manager or boss knock you down to the point where you don't have confidence in yourself. And that is what happened to me. So what I wound up doing that summer right after business school, so I graduate, no job because I turned everything down. I was supposed to be pursuing my dream. Is I the, the, the good news is the VCs knew me because they had seen me do the tour and talk about what the opportunity was. And so I had a network of people, even though I didn't know I had a network of people. And, you know, you have to sometimes lean on people and say, do you have any suggestions for things that I could do? And one thing led to another. I met Chris Birch, Tori Birch's uh, actually ex-husband now. They were married at the time. And he was doing a lot of investments on the internet stage. And you know, when you're in that space, actually failure is a good thing. It's almost a badge of honor. And so he was very excited about the fact that I had gone out and raised money. I'd written a business plan. I was got getting something launched. Like that was those were valuable skills. And so I think my advice is don't ever let anybody totally knock your confidence down. And you've got to build resilience when these things happen. But also Every opportunity that that even if it's bad and that you got laid off or fired, you've learned something Mm -hmm. that's of value to someone else. And I think that's really important. That's a great point. Randy Zuckerberg was here and she talked about the first show that she pitched, which didn't end up doing that great. But but everybody in the world of television production was like, hey, you actually got a show on TV. That is a badge of honor. So we go back to this conversation you get where you're four months into a job at Microsoft that you thought was going to be like your life stream. You're getting a phone call and it says Cheryl wants to talk to you as in Cheryl Sandberg at Facebook about coming on board. What goes through your head? I was walking up the steps to my one of my very best friend's house in Montclair. It was in October, getting ready for the Halloween season. I'll never forget it. There were pumpkins on the side. <laughs> I mean, I know I have the whole vision in my head. And I was like, 
uh, I can't possibly go have this conversation. I just got to Microsoft. Like I'm just rejuvenating the culture and I've been doing a world tour, meeting the teams. How can I possibly do this? And then the other side of my head, I was having a conversation in my head. The other side was saying that I have been a fan of what Facebook has been doing since the beginning. We tried to buy Facebook when I was at Viacom. And so I had been watching the company grow. I had huge admiration for it. And I, at that time, I thought Mark was on to something incredibly special. Little did I understand, even back then, what he would eventually want to do with the company, which has now been extraordinary. So I had these two conversations going on in my head. And I wound up saying, I will regret not having at least the discussion. No harm in having it. Yep. And so I did. I met with Cheryl and Mark and a couple of other people on a Sunday via – I was heading to Australia and I detoured into San Francisco to do a layover and had the meeting with them. Do you, by the way, when you're sometimes in these moments, do you ever feel like I'm so powerful? Like not in a not in an obnoxious way but just like, wow, look at me. Look, look at what I managed to do with my life. No, because I'm like super self-critical and like I'm the biggest work in progress. I am really tough. I just got off the stage and I'm like being totally critical of how I did this morning already. Oh, come on. I'm serious. That's who I am. I'm just – I'm very tough on myself. I'm probably my toughest critic by far. Well, I think what you should say the next time you take a diversion to San Francisco via Australia is I am owning this and I can't even (laughs) say the rest of it because we get bleeped. But you're doing doing it. That's nice. No, so I I had an amazing day with them and – but, you know, it took some time because that was the – she and I had spoken in October, met with them in November. And then what happened was, you know, that Facebook really needed to go through a process of to interview. And Cheryl had gotten my name from asking a number of CMOs and agency CEOs. And my name kept coming up and that's how she called me. But it needed to take – time. And so I had to put Facebook a little bit in the back of my head because I needed to focus on what I was there to do, which was to lead the Microsoft team. But Cheryl, to her credit, just kept calling to say, hang in there, be patient. I know you're the one, but we're going to keep going through a process. The team needs to interview other people. And she was relentless about staying in touch. And she said a few things that I'll never forget. She said, you know, if you're lucky to be able to join a rocket ship once in your life, you got to get on it. Yep. And she had obviously had two rocket ships. She had Google and now Facebook. And she said, at the end of the day, no one's ever going to question what you're doing if it's right for you. Like, you have to do what's right for you, not for any other company. And those always stuck with me. So I wound up joining the, that spring of 2011. And I've been at Facebook for six and a half years. Six and a half years at Facebook. Which is a lot in dog years. It's more than I've ever been at any company at this point in my career. Well, it's funny you say that. So I was at Viacom for almost eight years and I'm like, I'm like itching to get to the to that mark. And <laughs> you know, it's a real it's a real challenge because most co- people now coming into their careers are only staying at companies for an average of three. Sorry, average of five, excuse me, in the technology industry, it's an average of three. And that's actually one of the reasons why I spend so much time on culture, because I care about retaining our very best talent. But, you know, people are going to have many, many different careers. And but Facebook is home for me now and in a way that I can't imagine being anywhere else. And working for Mark, he's I think he's going to go down as one of the greatest leaders of our generation, period, full stop. When it comes to culture, how would you describe the culture of Facebook to a total outsider? It's something like I've never seen before, and I've worked in a number of companies. It is a culture of a lot of type A people that are incredibly passionate and bought into the mission. I think if you're not bought into the mission of bringing the world closer together, which is our new mission, uh, new mission, 
it's going to it's going to be a, a painful experience for you just because everyone around you is so excited about the mission. So you have a lot of passion, mission, mission oriented, purpose driven people um, who push you. They push you intellectually all of the time. It can be intimidating in, in certain meetings because you're surrounded by all of these people that are really passionate, incredibly intelligent. But it, that culture pushes you all to be better. Um, it's a culture around transparency. Mark is unbelievably transparent. He shares information with everyone um, so frequently. He does a weekly Q&A on Friday. The whole company participates. You can ask him any question. He gets frustrated if the questions aren't hard enough. It's a culture that rejects status <laughs> quo. frustrated if they're not hard enough. Yes. To- they have to be just tough, smart questions. They could question something, a decision no he's balls. made. He doesn't like softballs because he is – Somebody, it was interesting. He was interviewed um, pretty recently about the one quality he'd like to instill in his first daughter. This was before his second daughter was born. And he said that he wants Max to be just deeply intellectually curious, like if there was one wish he had. Mm-hmm. Mark is the most intellectually curious human being I've ever encountered. And so he comes up with these annual challenges to push himself. He's learned Mandarin. He meets new people every day. He coded a robot for his home. This <laughs> Named year Jarvis. Yes, named Jarvis. <laughs> this year he's you know touring the U.S. to go to places he hasn't been so he can learn about different points of view. And so the culture that he sets, and and frankly, it's not Mark's culture anymore. Now there's over 20,000 people, and we, we all say we own the culture just as much as Mark. But it's one where we reject status quo. We're constantly trying to figure out how we can improve. That's probably where my self-critical nature even – it probably gets even fostered even more at Facebook mm-hmm. because it's very typical to walk out of a presentation or a meeting and have a colleague say – Here's what you did well. Here are a few things that I think could have gone better. It happened mm. to me just this morning. And my team gave me, you know, honest feedback and they were right. So that happens quite frequently. And it's a culture that rewards um, failure, innovation, bravery, being bold. And because that's, what that's what's required in technology. If you don't innovate, you will become stagnant and be irrelevant. Constantly innovating and elevating, thinking about yes. what's next. And and I, I get that, too, from the, the idea of um, – sort of critical interpretations um, of, of what your work quality is and how you can constantly be upping your game. And if you're surrounded by people who you trust are really good at what they do and you trust what they believe, then hearing the feedback from them can make you better if you interpret it in a way that's not you know, harmful to you and your psyche. Yes. So, you know, we have it's I, we never use the term constructive criticism because <laughs> why think- not? Well, because think of the word criticism. Yes. By definition, it's, it's like being critical. critical. I use the word critical and I was actually trying to come up with something right? else because of that. Yes. So we don't use that word. We 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 provide um, feed. We say things like feedback <laughs> is a gift um, to which you can have all sorts of jokes around that. Yes, it's it feels like Christmas every day because you get so much of it. But we feedback is a gift. Have the hard conversations. And it stems from the belief uh, that Cheryl and Mark both have that great companies that existed at one point that are no longer here. It's not that they woke up on Monday morning and had some, you know, major thing happen that they didn't foresee. So Kodak, for example, it was a great company. Right. It's no longer here, but it wasn't like the executives woke up and digital hit them on a Monday morning and right. poof, the company is gone. It was likely because in the culture, people would not have hard conversations with each other. They wouldn't be direct. So there were plenty of people at Kodak that knew digital was going to be either a major threat or a major opportunity. 
but they didn't feel comfortable raising that. And mm-hmm. so we're trying really hard to be a place where if you have a concern, if you think something can be done better, if you think you can help somebody improve their performance, let's talk it out. Let's talk about it. But at the same time, of course, when you're running a company of thousands of people, you have to have them focusing on the daily work and not every single second. Or maybe you do have them focusing literally every single second on, should I re- should I really be doing this thing that's in front of me right now? So we have a few things around that. We have a saying called ruthless prioritization, which yes. is like deep in the culture. So thinking about like, what are you working on? Ruthless. Ruthless. And, I like And that ruthless. word ruthless is a pretty important word. It's hardcore. It's hardcore. Just as much as criticism is hardcore. Ruthless is hardcore. So we have that. But we also have the co- – he has set the company to think about a three, five, and ten-year roadmap. And so there are people at the company that are literally focused on 10-year work in artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality. How do we connect the billions of people unconnected? And there's a team of people that focus on that. There's a team of people that are thinking, okay, how do we build ecosystems over the next five years around things like messaging and WhatsApp and continue to build search and groups? And then there's a whole lot of resources. Most of the resources of the company are focused on like the here now to the next three years. Mm -hmm. How do we continue to improve Facebook and Instagram functionality and the communities around that? And so – to some degree, the way he's organized the strategy of the company, you know, makes it so that you don't have 20,000 people all worried about what are we going to be like in 10 years. There's a lot of actual work that goes into making the day-to-day better. And, you know, we view it as a privilege to have people's time. People, you know, time is your most important asset that you have as an individual. And you make those decisions every single moment with what to do with it. And if people are going to give us time, we need to make sure we're constantly improving the products. And so we do focus a lot on the now. And billions of people are giving you their time every single day. I can't think of another thing that people actively choose to do. It is. It is. I mean, the numbers are are are, are extra, and it, but they're humbling. Like they they make us really think very hard about what are we doing and what are we doing to improve it. But there are two billion people on Facebook on a monthly basis, a million uh, and a half, a billion and a half, excuse me, a day. I just got off stage announcing Instagram's new numbers, right, which I saw are 800 million accounts uh, on Instagram are now and 500 million active. Something I love that I heard that you do is you write this vision statement. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Something I love that I heard that you do is you write this vision statement. 
I do. Every year you have everyone on your team write a vision statement about what they foresee a year out. Is that it? Is that how it works? Yes. Yes. So what ha- we're actually going to be doing it in a few weeks. So what we've done over – I work with a coach, um, a professional coach. Um, her name is Lisa McCarthy, and she brought this discipline to me personally, and then I brought it to, to the Facebook uh, – the business side of Facebook. But essentially what we do is uh, early November we take a few hours, we carve it out, and we ask people to write – what their vision is as if it's already happened. So this November, we will write, it is December 31st, 2018. And then it will be, here are all of the things that I've done. And I divide mine in three areas. I have personal goals, how I want to show up as a mom, what how I want to show up as a spouse, a friend, how I want to eat, do I want, what kind of exercise do I want to do? All of like very personal things. How much travel do I yes. want in my well, life? Well, that's been in there. Yes, yeah, so we've been trying to uh, bring it down. But yes, absolutely. I put a goal in there. Uh, what kind of daughter do I want to be to my mom and dad? I want more patience. Like things like that I write. I write. I really try to be very detailed. I write business goals and then I write community service ones. But I wrote the way it's written, it's as if it's already happened. So it's like, um, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that we took a service trip to Kenya it was it was remarkable. We brought you know twenty people with us and exposed them to doing service internationally, whatever it is. And I write it, and then I share mine with the whole company, which is kind of hard. I feel it very vulnerable. Holds you to it, right? It does, and I won't achieve everything. Like I, because if I'm if I'm going to achieve every single thing I've written down, then I'm not pushing myself. And so, but it holds me accountable. It makes me vulnerable, but it actually, I think, also puts a human side to a person and say, look, these are all things I'm trying to do. Then my team is aware of it. They help me. They'll ask me questions like, well, how are you doing with that? Did you actually start running this year? You said you were going to. And when I lead and manage my team, I sit down and I check in with them on their visions as well. So we've been doing this now for four years at Facebook, and it is the single, I think, the single biggest game changer in terms of people feeling like they can figure out, at least on paper, which then gets into their planning and their head and how they prioritize their time, they feel it's the single biggest differentiator to help them lead an extraordinary life as, as well as an, have an extraordinary career. And it, at the end of the day, I think that's what leadership is way more about. I could be a, an effective leader and just drive the number over and over and over again, but I want to be an enlightened leader. I want to be an enlightened leader that actually cares about people that helps them re- reach their fullest potential and stands for a culture that doesn't burn people out after three years because I don't think that's effective. And when talent is as, you know, when you're competing for talent the way we all are, when you get them in, you want people to feel like this is a place they can stay for a long time. So I really encourage people to do the visions. I, I love the idea. I, I need to start doing that. When you think about that vision, how do you weigh the extracurricular slash personal side of things versus the professional side. And when you go out in a year, how do you balance those trade-offs in your mind? Well, I always say that if I can't be the person I want to be on the personal side, if I can't be the mom I want to be or the spouse or the friend, then nothing else matters. So I start, that's my anchor. And that is what I spend, I think, most time figuring out how to do a good job on because that's the stuff that can suffer the most if you don't prioritize it. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in people that I, that work for me that are not you know, st- spending enough time prioritizing things closest to them. So that's my anchor. The rest of it, I, I feel like I've got to stretch myself. I want to do these things, but I've got to be anchored on the personal side. 
And, you know, the studies are – there's a lot of studies around this. I mean, eventually my dream is that Bloomberg – you know, the Bloomberg terminals yes. where people make investment decisions. I really want companies to be evaluated on their culture and the health of their culture and have some type of metric on Bloomberg terminals. So that's the like my dream because I think we need to hold companies accountable for creating healthy cultures. But it does show – the data at least suggests that, that the happier your employees are – the better the company performs in the mm-hmm. S&P. And so it makes sense, right? If your personal life is not okay and you, you will have a very hard time performing at work, you can maybe compartmentalize it for a certain period of time, but eventually it catches up to you. So I first care deeply about the personal side. And what did it take you to get to that point where you had the aha moment, the realization of all of these anchored things are the things I have to focus on first? My twins were born uh, – they're 14. They're about to be 15. Um, and when they were born, they were born at 27 weeks, which means they were very premature. And they had a 30% chance of survival. Wow. And so I was a prime media at the time. You know, I had a general manager job. I was running a business. And, you know, my biggest concerns back then were, like, is the PowerPoint ready? And, like, how are we doing on our numbers and whatever? And then that happens, and it just changes your perspective, like instantaneously, because at that point I was fighting for the, for my life, for their life in order to – because I, I had some serious health issues um, when they were 20 weeks. And it just changed me. And I realized that at the end of the day – and my husband has this amazing saying. He's like – and it's morbid, but I'll share it with you. He's like, my tombstone is never going to read anything about what I've done in my career, ever. But I wanted to read – in his case, he wants it to read that he was like the best father, the best husband, the best son – and that has grounded me because – and if you go and I've – you know, sadly, there's been some, you know, funerals of people that I admire hugely in the business over the last few years. You go to the funerals, there's nothing – there's very little mentioned over what they are doing or what they did in their job. But what is mentioned is the kind of human being they are, the spouse, the father, the mother, how, what they gave back to their community. That's the stuff that matters. That's the legacy. People are not going to remember how much revenue I ran at Facebook. They're just not in a few years. I don't even think they probably remember it right now. But I hope they'll remember that I cared enough about the culture to launch this movement, which we call Fuel, and give people some tools to help them lead extraordinary lives. Like that would be a win for me, not the amount of revenue that I oversee. When you look at your career and the decisions that you've made along the way, the choices to go to the next place, along the way, how have you made choices For example, early on when you were in, I I did a similar thing. I started out in investment banking. You started out in consulting, and I did the two-year program, and it was quite painful. Um, I I don't know crazy hours. I worked in investment bank between business school summer, so it's an intense experience. It's it's incredibly intense, and you you don't see your friends, and you work hundred plus hour weeks, and you don't sleep. How have you made the call when it's the right time to move to the next thing, even if you liked the last thing that you were doing? So a few few things and nuggets that have stayed with me. When I was at Viacom, I had been there almost eight years when the Microsoft thing was was coming about. And I was reluctant to leave Viacom. I love the brands. I was comfortable. I love the company. And one of my clients said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, are you just going to keep riding the escalator up at 1515 Broadway? And that statement stung. Right. It's the equivalent of you're going to keep walking into that building or whatever, however mean mode of transportation. And what it said to me was, 
I, yeah, I'm actually here to do more than just continue to ride the escalator and do something that I'm comfortable. So that's one piece of advice that I've got. And I think keeping that in the back of your mind, when you get to the point where you're not learning and as much as you feel like you should, you're feeling a little complacent or too comfortable, I think that's when, you know, something's got to get inside you and say, got time to keep pushing. Um, the second thing I've done, which has really helped me, is I read a book early on a number of years ago from a McKinsey partner, a woman, who said, every company has a board of directors. Why don't people have boards of directors? And I was like, that's a really interesting statement. And then I started to realize that I had lots of different people in my life that could be on my board. And then I started to pull it together. And I don't they don't sit and have meetings with agendas, like at a big, long brown table. But there are a set of people that I go to when I've got to make big decisions. And sometimes I go to them individually. Sometimes I'll bring a few of them together. When you bring a few of them together and they start talking about you as if you're not in the room, that's weird, <laughs> which does happen. But I think it's a notion of like we all need some people around us that are rallying behind us that are supportive to help us guide these decisions. But if you're riding the escalator and you know you're riding the escalator, it's time to sometimes think about getting off. I like that. One of the things I hear from a number of, of women, they've found their way. They've worked really, really hard in their careers. They've moved up. They've they've been able to manage their way to that sort of middle management place. And then they're stuck. And and I hear this more from women than I hear it from men. And I wonder how if, if you've had to approach that in your career and how you would think about that if if you were going through that problem. Well, the data is totally suggests that that is absolute fact. 100%. Right? There are not enough women in C-suites. There are not enough women on boards. There are not enough women as government leaders, not enough women as nonprofit leaders. You, the list goes on and on and on and on. But I actually think that there's never been a better time to be a woman. Like, I'm really optimistic for women. I'm optimistic for my, my, my twin girls because every company, every organization, every university, they all realize that diversity – is a even if you didn't do it because it's morally right, 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 which I would hope ninety nine point nine nine percent of the people. But even would if do. it's just for publicity, even if you didn't do it because it's morally right, it's right for business. It makes the business perform better, and the data on that is also super super clear. So, I think there's going to be increased opportunity for women. I think women. W- one of the things that holds back women is sometimes they don't go for those big jobs because they're nervous. They don't feel fully qualified. Whereas, you know, the data is clear on this. Men will typically raise their hand when they have 50% of the qualifications. Women wait until they have 100% of the qualifications. Have you ever been worried that you weren't qualified enough for a job you took? I'm worried all the time. I'm still worried. I still feel like my job is huge and like – But you keep doing it anyway. Because you have to. Because the reality is is that no one's really ever fully ready unless you're riding that escalator too long and that we're all getting challenged every single day. If you're not, then it is probably time to move on. But you've got to get out there. You've got to take some risks. And one of the very best posters at Facebook, we have all these posters with sayings, but (laughs) lots of them. But one is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? I love that poster. Right? And, you know, it's the question Mark asked Cheryl before she wrote Lean In. What would you do if you weren't afraid? And she wrote Lean In because she realized, like, that's what she would do if she wasn't afraid about talking about being a feminist and getting that message out there. And she did. And it's so I think we all have fear in us. I think we all have these inner voices, particularly women. My coach has been working with me for a lot of a lot of years on my inner voice, and I've nicknamed her Penelope. Um, <laughs> one of my colleagues nicknamed hers Penelope, and there's no disrespect to any Penelope out there. It's a lovely name, but I was like, all right, I'll take that the name. The negative voice in your head. Yes. Her name is Penelope. Yes. 
and I, and and she has things to say and some and the the you're never going to get completely rid of it at least I don't know if you totally can but I know when it's there and now there's a difference between me knowing it's you know the inner voice Penelope in my head versus something else that's going on and once you know it's there you can do better at actually dealing with it there's so many places I want to go I do want to just quickly on the Facebook side of things talk about one other thing that's been in the news which is the fact that you have um, the advertising that has become a big question for people that at least some of the ad revenue came from Russia what is the feeling internally about this information coming out so let me first start by saying, look, there's nothing more important to us than actually having democracy and integrity in elections. And so when we uncovered the fact that $100,000 of ads over the course of two years, which is very small in the scheme of our advertising business, but nonetheless, there was an amount that was run, um, likely with potential ties to to Russia. We've turned that information over to Investigator Mueller as well as the con- as well as the Congressional Committee that's overseeing it. We're going to continue to cooperate with uh, with them. There's no place for that on our platform. We do not want fake or inauthentic accounts doing anything on our platform. And we worked very hard over the weekend for the German elections to maintain integrity there. And we did the same for France a number of months ago. So we're going to continue to work on this until we we find ways to keep this off of the platform. It'll it'll be hard. to. I don't think we can ever be perfect on any of these things, given the size and scale. Um, but we're going to keep trying and we need to do better. What's been the toughest lesson for you along the way? Oh, God, there's been a lot of them. Um, I think for me, the the losing my confidence for so many years um, after getting fired and having that come out in weird ways where the inner voice was definitely in there always. Like if I had gotten a phone call from anybody that I was working for after getting fired from Pets.com to come see them, I assumed I was getting fired. Right. Just always. What did I do? I'm I'm probably getting fired. And that's like so unhealthy. And you lose so much positive energy around that. And, you know, Cheryl approached me at a women's event at Facebook a few years ago when she said, you know, sometimes I feel like you've got some confidence issues. And I blurted out and said, yes, I do, because I was fired. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I was fired from my own company. And I tell her the story. And she looks at me and she said, so what if I fired you right now? And I was like, oh, no, 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 please don't do that. Wait, that is not the purpose of this story. And she said, no, wait a second. But if I did, you'd be fine. You would be okay. What she was trying to say to me is that when you get knocked down, you will be okay. And I think when you lose that, even in yourself from a career standpoint or something, that's a painful lesson. And we all need to stay incredibly optimistic and positive and get back on our feet and build deep resilience. So what is the worst advice you've received along the way? Well, it's funny because one of my boards, uh, one of the members of my board told me that I, I would, you know, I should not leave Microsoft to go to Facebook. And Facebook has been life changing for me um, because I've been able to work on something that I care so deeply about. I've been I'm working for somebody in Mark who I said before, I think will go down as one of the greatest, not only leaders, but humanitarians in the world, donating um, all of his essentially all of his wealth. And I learn from him all the time. And I think back to I almost didn't make that decision based on some advice. And the advice was around people are going to think you're not loyal and it's going to be negative around, you know, your perception that you would get up and leave a company. 
And at the end of the day, I had to do what I felt was right. I stuck to my gut, and um, I'm glad I did it. But that was pretty bad advice that would have really not given me the opportunity to do what I do now, which is what I love. Yeah, imagine if you had been too afraid to take the opportunity, and then you'd be watching someone else in, in the shoes that you were hoping to fill. It would, have, it would have been a real, real bummer. But I did get the advice not to. And so sometimes I always say advice, you have to be careful when you ask advice, even from your board, because there's advice often comes with some level of subjectivity. And the key is to figure out who is actually giving you advice because they genuinely are objective and care about what might or might not happen. In this case, by the way, the person that gave me the advice was, full, was very objective, mm-hmm. just was worried. Right. Worried and, and justifiably in his mind so, and I value that. Um, but we joke around it now. It was good I didn't take his advice. I think 80% of the time, the worst advice come from people who care about you and are trying to protect you from taking a risk. Exactly, exactly. But there is something comforting about being in a comfort zone, And but we've got to keep pushing ourselves because you know, you're here on this planet for a very important reason in my belief, and I feel like I am and everyone else is, and it's like finding what that reason is and going for it, and that's a journey. I'm glad to have you here with us. Thank well, you thank so you much. for having me. It was an honor. I Carolyn really... Everson, thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys, now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Shayna Azad. Shayna is the founder and CEO of Suva Beauty. She founded the company in 2015, and she says she was aiming to create a brand that represented her cosmetic artistry and personal style. So she says she formulated Suva to be bold, inventive, weird, and cheeky. Before starting the company, Shayna had years of experience in marketing, visual design, business, and cosmetics. She studied foreign policy. She worked as a journalist and a marketing consultant in Cairo, was a film and TV makeup artist, and taught makeup artistry at Blanche McDonald Center in Vancouver. That's right. She's Canadian. She says it is her multifaceted background that gave her the upper hand in creating cosmetic products that specifically catered to professional makeup artists. Her most important game-changing decision was moving from retail e-commerce to mass distribution through brick and mortar. She says it was a tough call to make because of the changing retail landscape and the rise of e-commerce. But Shana says she believes that in the makeup industry, customers really need to test things out in person. She says this has totally accelerated the growth of the company, but it also came with a set of interesting challenges. Part of that growth includes a new partnership with Forever 21 earlier this year. If she could give herself some advice when she was first starting out, she says, think bigger, go all in much faster, don't be afraid of taking risks. She says she's found that the greatest risks she's taken in business have turned out to be the most lucrative. Find a mentor, she says, and eat more donuts because you deserve it. Work hard, eat hard. Shana, thank you so much. Congratulations. Here is your question now to Carolyn Everson. This week's Entrepreneur of the Week is Shana Assad. I first met her four years ago. I was doing a story for 2020, and it was about makeup. But Shana stood out from the beginning. She was a makeup artist four years ago. Now she has her own line. It's called Suva Beauty. She's selling out. She's doing great work. I'm wow. really, really proud of her. And she she asked some, she gave us a couple of questions to ask, and I thought this was a, an interesting one for you. So she said, what are some mistakes you made early on when hiring employees? Uh, it's a great question. So um, two things I would say on that. I'm going to start with actually letting employees go and then go to hiring. 
because some of the biggest mistakes I've made and continue to make is keeping people in their role longer than I should because I'm trying to get them back on track or I believe that I potentially can coach or have the right people around them. And the truth is is that sometimes the best thing you can do for people is to move them out of a role if the role has outgrown them. And so a lot of the mistakes I've made has been keeping people in roles too long. On the hiring side, we um, I've made a couple of big mistakes and some positions that were very close to me. And I think that I didn't spend enough time with the person. And, you know, you can do only so much in a 30-minute interview, but if this is a critical position, you know, one of my um, former colleagues from Viacom, after I was sharing the story with me, he said, well, would you have been able to sit at a bar and have a glass of wine for a few hours and talk to this person or the proverbial, what if you sat on the plane and talked to them? And I realized when he asked me that question, I wouldn't have been able to sit next to this person. Like something wouldn't have worked. And that is not trusting your gut. I would say the gut, your gut really is the best guide. And when you have some nervousness around it, trust it. Again, congratulations to Shana Azad, the founder of Suva Beauty. She's someone I met along my path as a journalist, and I'm so proud to announce her as this week's No Limits Entrepreneur. Keep going, Shana. I'm really enjoying reading all of these nominations for the No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, and I love all the interesting things you're doing out there. And we want to hear from you. So send me an email. Don't forget, send me an email at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. And join the conversation using the hashtag no limits. And thanks so much to the team here at ABC who makes this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Hecht, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones here at ABC Radio. Have a great week, everyone. Take care.